and welcome to Animal Spirits, the podcast that takes a completely different look at markets and investing, hosted by Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson, two guys who study the markets as a passion and invest for all the right reasons. Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson work for Ritholtz Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben. We're going to start the show off with a survey that was taken by the Wall Street Journal. They showed six indicators that investors should pay attention to when thinking about the next recession. High yield bond spreads, yield curve steepness, deal activity, weekly jobless claims, investor sentiment, and what the market thinks. And at the end, they let you vote on when you think the next bear market will start within three months, three to six months, six months to a year, more than a year. And I don't even remember what I clicked, but I did click something so that I could see the results. And we've got 49% of people thinking it's more than a year out with the other 51% thinking that it's within a year. And I'm sure the results will change, but just another, ah, we don't need to go over the survey stuff. We know why results aren't lousy, which we'll get to later in the show. But Ben. I'm actually surprised that more people don't think it's going to come sooner since markets are already in something of a downtrend. I don't know. I guess the, the six metrics here are kind of... I don't know if people actually use them to predict a bear market or if they use them to show that we're in a bear market at the time. So, Well, I think that yield curve steepness, at least when the curve inverts, is probably the thing that is always repeated or pointed to as a clear indicator that a recession is around the corner, if not already here. And people have been pointing to that for quite a while now, that it's getting close and it's getting close. And now we're just we're almost there. But the curve has been flattening since, I think, 2014. True. Yes, it's been a while. I think we've talked about it for a few years now. And I think the the other thing about these about this data is to remember that there's a huge difference between a recession and a bear market. And sure, bear markets are typically happen during a recession, but they happen outside of them quite frequently too. So I think that people have to remember that it's not just a recession that can cause a bear market. It can happen for a lot of reasons. Well, let me ask you this. If you could only see one of these quote-unquote indicators as a timing tool, which would you choose? Ooh, I mean, I guess, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I have, n- I have no clue. What would you, probably the yield curve, I suppose? I would probably go with spreads, but I think that weekly jobless claims are probably going to be a lagging indicator. Investor sentiment certainly is a lagging indicator, and you only see extremes like very infrequently. So I would probably go with yield spreads. But again, none of these are going in and of themselves are going to tell you. What typically happens with these things is that once you're in a recession, like it's usually too late. There's no magically leading indicator. If there was, we would all know it and we would all see bear markets coming before they actually arrived. Quant- yeah, quantifying a recession or bear market is way harder than it sounds. So the New York Times had a piece this week and it said the stock market typically rises after midterm elections, this year is anything but typical, which I feel like the last part of that, this year is anything but typical, you could say every <laughs> single year. But how much credence do you put into this stuff in terms of not just midterm elections, but seasonality and third year of a presidency? And don't you think that this stuff is just throw it out the window? Pretty much. Nobody's 
nobody's going to make investment decisions based on this. And I think maybe it's good to be aware, but actually, you know, it's probably not even good to be aware. You're probably better off not knowing this, how seasonality plays itself out. But the data here was pretty compelling, I must admit. Since 1946, in years with midterm elections, the S&P 500 gained a median of 18.4% in the nine-month period from September 30th, just ahead of voting, through June 30th of the following year, according to Ned Davis. In that same period in non-voting years, the index gained 4.9%. So that's a pretty gigantic difference. But I guess with an indicator like this or a seasonality study like this, you have to ask like, why did this work or why did this hold true? And is this the type of thing where Mandelbrot said the trend has vanished, killed by its discovery? Like, why would this persist once everybody knows about it? And and even forget about that, but taking a step back, why in the world were midterm election years bullish in the first place? Like, what caused that? Is it because presidents didn't really do much to juice the economy when they first got in, but they really held that in their back pocket and they unleashed whatever economic tailwinds that they can provide before the midterm so that they would get reelected? Like, why would this even be a thing? This, this is the pumpkin everyone shows every year. It says correlation equals causation. So it's supposed to be really scary. Did you see this? Oh, okay. No, no, no. Uh, yeah, really, yeah, it's a really funny, dorky joke. But that that's kind of my view of this is I think you get the bull market in opinions anytime these elections happen and people try to craft narratives around what happened and why. So if stocks do continue to go higher, it's because of whoever won the midterms. And if they don't go higher, then it's also because of who lost the midterms. And so, But I think that this study is showing that it doesn't matter who wins. That's the point. Oh, true. So it's just maybe the maybe the fact that people are hopeful that change will happen, that change will occur, and maybe it, it never happens, and, and that's part of it. But I don't. I just anytime you try to to give the the politicians too much credit for what happens at the stock market, I think it's a mistake. So let me pose this question: Do you think that this is robust? <laughs> In other words, would this? Would this be bullish overseas? And are there even midterm election overseas? I guess every political system is different, but I would be curious to know about that. That yeah, that's a very good question. If if we're putting our quant hats on, we'd have to see it in different markets and across different time periods. And yeah, so October was a pretty bad month for tech stocks, according to Bloomberg data. The CEOs and founders of Fang plus Bat, and I guess we know what Fang is. Bat is Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent. The CEOs lost sixty-one billion dollars in October. That is way too long of an acronym, because the Fang has two A's in it, and then plus Bat. I mean, can't we just say the group of biggest tech stocks? We could say that. All right, I, th- that's a lot of money, but you wonder how much they've they've made in that time. Is this one of those like cool-sounding tweets where? Jeff Bezos lost, like he, he made forty thousand dollars every half second over the like one, you know one of those. It's one of those. Okay, but it it is kind of interesting, and I don't. I feel like we need a committee on these acronyms because it's, there's just way too many of them now. Sometimes there's two A's in Fang. Sometimes there's one. I'm confused. <laughs> Moving on. So <laughs> Jason's Wag at the Wall Street Journal had a good piece, and it kind of ties into one of the topics we discussed last week. And someone asked us last week on the show if we think stocks could ever fall over a 20-year period. And we said, of course, that that's a risk that it, it, it's certainly a possibility. Actually, I don't think I don't think it was a question. I think it was more like of a snarky comment, like, like you idiots or, or... Yes. How could we... Yeah. How could we ever think long-term investing is, yeah. is the right way to go? Have you ever heard of Japan? So Jason Zweig talked about a new research paper, paper by a professor from Santa Clara University. 
And he looked back until, let's see, 1830. And this wasn't as much about stocks showing a 0% performance over a long period of time, but it was about stocks versus bonds. And he looked at periods where bonds beat stocks over rolling 30-year periods and actually found that this happened more often than people would think. So he found, let's see. Get to the point. (laughs) Bonds earned higher returns in stocks in one quarter of all 191 three-decade-long periods going back to 1823. So what he was saying was that this professor said that Professor Siegel only used treasury bills in his study in his book, Stocks for the Long Run. I mean, but I think Siegel countered with something like, well, these weren't risk-free bonds because there was plenty of risk to owning US bonds in the 1830s. I'm always a little suspect when data goes back this far. First of all, I don't know how accurate it could be. And second of all, I just think things were way different back then. But it is an interesting look at the fact that stocks don't always outperform what people would think are risk-free assets. I mean, didn't didn't that just recently happen that long bonds outperform stocks in the most twenty in a recent twenty-year period? Yes, through the towards the end of the Great Recession, I think that happened as well. And Siegel said so. Jason's reached out to Siegel, and he said, "Yeah, of course, bonds can outperform stocks over a twenty-year period. Like that's not an iron. That's not set in stone anywhere." No, and and I I don't think that that should be a worry to investors either. That just is something that happens depending on your start and end dates. And that's why you want stocks and bonds and gold. <laughs> yes. So anyway, it's, it's an interesting post, and we'll put a, a really cool chart in the show notes just to take a look at that one. We've already done one survey this week, so now we're going to do another one. This one was in Market Watch, and they found that only 28% of Americans are considered financially healthy, according to a CFSI survey of more than 5,000 Americans. The CFSI is legit. It sounds like a show on CBS. By the way, I feel like that's higher than I would have thought. So they they also said 17% of Americans are financially vulnerable, meaning they struggle with nearly all financial aspects of their lives, and 55% are financially coping, meaning they struggle with some but not all aspects. So wait, you're you're either financially healthy, financially vulnerable, or coping? Yes. That's actually not a bad way to think about it. And I think these... This is one survey where I thought these numbers actually look right to me. So it's less than a third of people think that they are doing okay financially, and two thirds of people are either coping or completely struggling. I think that actually sounds about right. Uh, okay. What What would your results be on the Michael Batnick survey? Well, off the top of my head, I would guess that fifteen percent consider them to be financially healthy. Okay. Fifty percent. Wait, what are the topics? All right, whatever. Let's move on. <laughs> All right. I think part of it too is probably how you feel about yourself relatively. Even if you may, even if you have ten million dollars, you may not think yourself as being wealthy. If you would rather have twenty or thirty, so maybe it depends on how people think about this stuff. So a lot of times on Twitter or just in articles in general, there is a headline mismatch, and we spoke about this earlier in the year, and I can't remember what article it was, but CNBC had an article: Millennial women worry about earnings, out earning boyfriends and husbands. And I think the tagline was millennial women are worried, ashamed of out earnings, boyfriends and husbands. But then the article, there's a quote in the article that also says the overwhelming majority of millennial women breadwinners don't believe the men in their lives should feel emasculated by the gap in their income, directly contradicting what the headline says. What percentage of people these days do you think never bother to read past the headline? And I know I'm, I'm guilty of this too, but it happens all the time, correct? Yeah. And I guess the, there's just problems with Articles like this, and there's so many like that, just throw out certain snippets that 
don't really tell you much. So there, the University of Chicago found that a wife making $5,000 a year more than her husband was associated with a greater risk of divorce. Right. So you take that out of context, but it doesn't tell you how much more likely and it doesn't tell you anything more about about these people. So let's say that a woman earns five thousand dollars a year more than her husband, but their collective income is only sixty thousand dollars. Like that is information that you would probably want to know. Very context dependent. Yeah. When you can't read that in a headline, by the way, I don't know who these people are that care if their spouse makes more than them. If if it's together, I don't see the big difference. it seems deal. so obvious that if you're married, you are one household and therefore you would and you would want that pie to be as big as possible, regardless of who is contributing to it. By the way, do you know any of these married households? It, I know a lot of people don't like to talk about money around their friends or family because it's kind of a taboo subject. But have you encountered a married household who keeps their finances separate? I don't I wouldn't know. I, I have some friends who do that and have talked about it a little bit. What do you mean? Like totally separate? Like the, they take their percentages of what they make and then they apply that to their mortgage and their grocery payments and their utilities. And that is freaking odd. Is that not, I mean, I guess it works for them, but it seems to me like that would lead to way more heartache and pain and stress than, (laughs) than the alternative, which is to pool it all together and you're both on the same team. Yeah. So Robin's paycheck goes to my account. Her credit card goes to my account. So all the bills are paid through me. Right. I don't see what the point of ever separating these things out is. I think that just put a lot more strain on your life than is necessary. Okay. So you wrote an article talking about, you listened to a podcast on how I built this where Guy Raz interviewed the founder of Tempur-Pedic. Yeah, it was a very good podcast. I, I enjoyed it. I did not realize that Tempur-Pedic the material came from a NASA discovery, actually, and they used it in the original spaceships to try to soften the blow were there to be a problem on one of the spaceships. So you wrote something in there that was really sort of mind-blowing. I guess not totally surprising, but, but, but mind-blowing nonetheless. You wrote, so positioning these pillows as a high-end product likely led to an increase in sales, while a lower price would have decreased demand, turning everything you've read in economics textbooks on its head. Yeah, he was basically surprised that they wanted to charge more than he was charging. He was selling them through chiropractors. And he said, I'm selling them for 70 bucks to chiropractors. And they said, no, we need to charge 90 because you need to have some sort of differentiation from the competitors because we already have seven pillows on the market. And it was way more successful than they ever could have imagined. They thought the reason was because he charged so much. He said, if I would have charged 30, no one would have bought them, which is kind of mind boggling. I don't know if that's social proof or what that is, but we are so anchored to prices. We we perceive value based on how much something costs versus how much value is actually received. And Robert Cialdini, I always said Cialdini, but I guess Cialdini makes more sense, was speaking about this over the weekend on Barry's podcast, which was really good. If you haven't listened to it, we'll link to that in the notes. Do you remember when the guy from the guy who started the Apple stores, I think I believe his name was Ron Johnson, took over JCPenney a few years ago? Yes. And JCPenney is notorious for having sales all the time. Every week is like the biggest sale of the year and they have they give out coupons to people. And he said, you know, it it's, makes no sense to have people look for these coupons and clip them all the time. Let's just have everyday low prices. And the people, the customers revolted. They wanted to have those coupons, <laughs> even if it gave them the same. And he ended up leaving in, I think, within under a year or two. Yeah, right? Like you, get, you give yourself like a win if you buy something on sale. 
Right. And I get that it's it's so psychological, but it's crazy that people think about this stuff. And, and I, obviously, there's an obvious correlation here between the stock market where people feel better when stocks are going up, even though they're putting money to work as opposed to stocks going down and wanting to buy when things you know are on sale. Yes. So Berkshire Hathaway reported earnings over the weekend. And I just want to read a quote from the Wall Street Journal. Berkshire bought a roughly $300 million stake in Paytm in August and bought Stone shares in the company's initial public offering this past week. Both Paytm and Stone fit the mold of typical Berkshire investments in at least two ways. Da, 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 da. Let's see. Berkshire's investments demonstrate the maturity of the financial technology industry, which has grown from a curiosity in Silicon Valley in the wake of the financial crisis to a sector that has attracted nearly $35 billion in venture capital globally in the first nine months of 2018. So $35 billion in VC money in the first nine months of this year going to fintech. And then I was thinking that are the entrenched banks missing the boat on this? Are they in trouble in the future? Of course, not tomorrow, but maybe like 50 years in the future. Or are they going to be the natural buyers for these new young companies? I think the biggest problem technology firms have in the finance industry is dealing with regulations because tech firms are don't have much regulation to deal with. And I feel like trying to get into the entrenched banking industry could be tough from that angle. I suppose if there's enough money, it might not matter. So what was the huge fund we talked about a few weeks ago, SoftBank? Maybe SoftBank can can just write some checks in to get in there. But I would imagine it's going to be hard for them to completely displace the current banking industry, whether that would be a good thing or not. And obviously, this is a drop in the bucket. I think this was Combs, not Wetchler, who bought this. But it's certainly not something that you're accustomed to seeing from Berkshire Hathaway, making investments in financial technology startup companies. What's going to happen when Buffett's not around anymore? And we can't jump to conclusions about everything he does, by the way. Because every time Berkshire does something, it means the market is going to do something else based on what he's doing. So if he's if he's sitting on a lot of cash, then that means stocks are overvalued. But if he's buying stocks, that means he... I don't know. Well, Munger once said, all I want to know is where I'm going to die so I never go there. Ah. And so if Munger doesn't die, we'll have him to, to lead <laughs> okay. on. Okay. So Noah Smith had a pretty good piece in Bloomberg this week about student loans. And some of the, the stats in here kind of were mind-blowing. So he was looking at a bunch of studies for student loans. He said only half of students went to college in 1995 or 96 had paid off their loans within 20 years, which is pretty crazy. I didn't realize that the terms could last that long. Well, is that a typical term? Is it 20 years? I mean, I, I guess mine was. I guess I guess that is mine, but only half of them had done so. I thought 20 years was kind of typical. That just seems loaded. I guess people just keep rolling them over. I don't know. So then he also said in 2010, the Student Aid and Fiscal Responsibility Act effectively nationalized the student lending industry. And that made it easier for government, basically the government to lend to students. And he said the percentage of student debt held by the federal government rose from about 30% to almost 80%. And student loans now comprise 45% of the federal government's financial assets. That sounds very high. Mind-boggling. And the, the most mind-boggling thing about it to me is the fact that the government continues to charge such such high interest rates on these loans. I mean, they could effectively make life so much easier on young people if they just did a cap on these things and charged people 2% interest because they're the ones holding it all. I don't. I guess I just don't understand why they made that decision. So there was another article on CNBC. Somebody moved to a jungle in India to escape a student debt. And I think when you read articles like this... <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> boy, that was, that's cold, Ben. What? <laughs> he literally moved to a jungle in India? I don't, that just, but, that's... <laughs> when you read articles like this, it sort of 
is easy to blow this out of proportion, even though we understand that student debt is a real issue. But the average is what? 17 grand? Yes. It's not as high as people make it out to be. Right. So this guy was a philosophy major, which I guess shouldn't be too surprised that he had trouble making a decent wage. But his balance was around $20,000. And he said, if you're not making a living wage, $20,000 in debt is devastating. And he wrote, he said, adjusting to a new country has not been easy. Quote, some toilets here are holes in the ground you squat over. Recently, he ate spoiled goat meat at a local restaurant and landed at the emergency room. Still, he said, I can't believe you're laughing. <laughs> I'm sorry. Hold on. Still, he said, I have a higher standard of living in a third world country than I would of America because of my student debts. And here's some numbers to contextualize what's going on. So half of student loan borrowers haven't paid even $1 toward their debt principal within five years. Or I'm sorry, five years into repayment. And this I didn't know, but it makes sense. Moving to another country to escape student debt is risky because if the person wants or needs to return to the United States, they'll find that their loan balance has only grown. The education department typically can't garnish someone's wages if they're working for a company outside the United States. However, they can take up to 15% of social security benefits when they start collecting. So the loans don't disappear if you leave the country. And in fact, in 2017, the government seized more than $600 million from student borrowers' paychecks in 2017. That's a big number. So what would the economic stimulus be? I'm not smart enough to figure this out. If we did like a cash for clunkers for student loans and during the next recession, the government just said, we're going to wipe away 50% of your debt. What would the economic implications be? I don't know. Okay. Maybe this guy would move back from India and be able to use a toilet that's not a hole in the ground. But isn't that crazy that this guy this guy had to go to India to get to, to flee? But I guess he's probably not aware that he can't come back, really. And obviously, it worked, and he's not paying his student loans off anymore. I don't know. I figure you have to get to six figures to move to another country and live in the jungle before the student loans. I just... <laughs> I don't know, 20 grand? It doesn't seem like it's... Anyway, moving you mid- on. You're a, mid- you're a Midwestern elitist. I guess so. All right, let's move on. So we, get, so we got a listener comment. I had friends that bought houses in the 1981-83 period that were paying 16% 30-year fixed rate. And then he goes on to say, the house that I bought in 2000 for 630000 is now worth approximately $1.2 million. And my initial reaction to that was, holy shit, that's like a... What a home run. But then the next the next part of the, the email was, which translates into a 3.6% annual return. And of course, if you paid 630, it's now worth $1.2 million. It doubled, but over a 17 or 18 year period, and that's not so great a return, especially considering the fact that he's not factoring taxes or upkeep or anything like that. And this is not a house that he, which he intended to flip, I don't believe, obviously, because he's held it for 18 years. But what did you think about this? I mean, after inflation and all the other ancillary cost of homeownership, it probably was either a loss or probably break even on, a, on real terms. So it's interesting because you see those numbers and you think, wow, this, this person did amazing. The point of his comment to us was, it's not as great as you think in terms of real estate. And I think that's one of the reasons people always assume the American dream means buy a house and it'll make you wealthy or it's the biggest investment you'll ever make because you deal with big numbers. And everyone has... you know, My grandparents bought a house for $10,000 in 1945 and now it's worth 300 and so it must be a great investment but until you actually run the numbers and get beyond just the the big you know six or seven figure values it's it's hard to see did you say $10,000 I was just that was just I was making that up okay because what if you put that into Netflix <laughs> yes that's true <laughs> back in 1940 you would have done amazing 
And so I looked at some real estate data from Schiller a few weeks ago for a piece. And so from 1890 to 2018, and I guess, again, take the early data with a huge grain of salt, or to speak in your terms, a grain of sand, the total gain after inflation from that whole for the whole period was 73%, which works out to just over 0.4% annually on a real basis for home prices. Obviously, that's different in different markets, and you know it's not the same thing depending on where you buy. But but wait, how do home prices do in midterm election years? <laughs> now we I, all right. I think that's we just found some real estate alpha. Okay, moving on to some listener questions. Let's see the behavior gap between what returns investors earn on their investments versus the returns of the underlying indices have been calculated by Dalbar and other data service providers consistently over the years. The explanation given for the difference is that investors tend to sell after decline and buy after markets have risen, thereby hurting their performance. Who or what investors benefit from this tendency? Okay. So I guess the question is, if investing is a zero-sum game and these people are, have negative alpha, where is the rest of the returns going? Yes. What, what do you say? I think that it's, it's harder to quantify this stuff than most people realize because you don't ever... I think the behavior gap is probably worse at the extremes. And when we're just in kind of the middle innings, so let's say from two to seventh inning stretch, most of the time it's hard to tell because people are dollar cost averaging, they're selling their investments to pay for retirement needs. So I think it's I think the behavior gap calculations are a lot harder to specifically say with certainty what they mean most of the time. And I think it's only at the extremes where they really matter. Okay, so I would agree with you, but I guess the direct question is if everybody's losing, where are the gains going? And I guess your answer is that it's not that simple? Yes, I think it's not that simple to tell the motivation of the buyers and sellers or the reasoning behind them. And I think like if you take the simple performance of your dollar cost averaging in your 401k and look at it versus a lump sum, the lump sum is going to kill you over any time period to look at more or less. But that's because you don't have a lump sum to invest at the beginning. So you're forced to dollar cost average. And I think that kind of skews the averages in some ways. So if everybody's losing, who's winning? I'm kidding. That's the fourth time I've asked this question. <laughs> I'm, I'm saying I think that the, the gap... I'm just going to... I'm going to say the obvious answer is the Illuminati. Okay. Well, maybe that's it. Maybe the winners are the financial firms who are collecting the transaction costs and all the, the frictions that are happening between those buys and sells. All right. That works. Okay. Do you think it's do you think it's harder for clients to hold on to an investment strategy through a bear market or a flat one? Ooh, this is a good question. I I don't know. I think it's probably we've had this conversation before. I think for a wealth management firm, it may be harder to hold on to clients during a flat market than a bear market because I think people freeze during a bear market and don't want to rock the boat in some ways in terms of who their outsourced investment provider is. What do you think? Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think it, it just depends because it depends what type of a flat market. 2014 to 2016 was flat-ish. We had a 12% decline, I believe, in the winter of 2015 to 2016. But if it's So that wasn't that bad. That was like a 18, 20-month period maybe. But if it's like a 16-year period of flat markets, so for instance, 66 to 82, where you have a bear market in 69 to 70 and then a really other nasty bear market in 73 to 74... If you consider that flat, and I don't know if you, if that's really flat, but that would be devastating for everybody involved. And, and unfortunately, those markets that go nowhere for a long time typically are extremely volatile. So yeah, but I think to your point, like in a bear market, 
A, misery loves company. If everybody's getting killed, like it's, you know, there's sort of not comfort in that, but there's maybe inertia and like a, 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 you know, a deer in the headlights type thing where you don't do anything. Yes. I think you could make the case that it's almost like almost every environment is hard in one way or another. Like I think even in a bull market, sometimes the hardest thing to do is hold on. And I think that's been a problem for a lot of people for the last three or four years. Yeah. I mean, all, all environments are hard. There's no, there's never like an easy period to invest. Although 2017 was pretty easy in hindsight, but of course the the daily headlines were like a ca- catastrophe. So you're saying the easy money has been made? It was made. All right. It's still being made. Okay, I'm holding you to that. Let's move on to some recommendations. Okay, so we watched Ready Player One this weekend, and I held off watching it for a while because I loved the book so much, and I heard a lot of bad reviews about it, and I think the bad reviews were right. It basically was nothing like the book. And it was an okay movie, I guess, if you went in without reading the book. But it was probably one of my favorite books of the last five or six years. And so this got me thinking, are there any movies out there that you've seen that are actually better than the book that it was based on? Okay, so how's how's this? I came up with two. Okay. Shawshank Redemption. Honestly, I did not know that was based on a book. (laughs) Okay, well, I'll do you one better. Well, actually, I I can't one-up you, but I did not read the book. Okay, I didn't either, obviously. So it's it's a Stephen King book. Oh, okay. Well, maybe I did know that. But I find it hard to believe that the book was better than the movie. Right, even though you've never read the book. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to agree with that without even knowing. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to give you credit for that one. Okay, and here's another one. Jurassic Park. Ah, uh, yes. I actually read the book. That's true. It's, it's a much better visually than it is in the book. All right, here's the only one I could think of. Fight Club. Movie was way better than the book. I didn't know that was a book. Yes, it's a book. And I actually read it after the movie. Maybe that skewed my line of reasoning a little bit, but I thought the the movie was 10 times better than the book. So th- every time you see a movie that you lo- wh- where you love the book, it's like always a sell the news event because when you're reading the book, you create all these visuals and you have ideas for what the characters look like and inevitably it's a letdown unless it's like such an incredible movie, which is rare because there aren't that many incredible movies. And it's harder to pack everything from a book into a movie. But it kind of, yeah, it disappointed me and but I was expecting to be disappointed so it lived up to expectations if that makes sense. All right. I was also reading, let's see, I was reading this week, the last couple of weeks, The Cuban Affair by Nelson DeMille. He's one of my other favorite fiction authors. And Wait, the reason- listen, he, he's, he's not alive, is he? He is alive as far as I know. And this one was actually about like a attempted heist in Cuba. And the reason I like his books is because he mixes fiction with real life learning about what's going on. And so I learned a lot about Cuba in this book, actually. Hold on. Who is this? Cecil B. DeMille? Ness- <laughs> Nelson DeMille. Oh, Nelson. Okay. Because I was like, yeah, he died and he was... All right. Is that a, any relation? I don't, I don't... I have no idea. I'm guessing not, but nice try. And I also want to recommend one of my favorite books of his. It's probably one of my favorite books of all time. It's called Nightfall. And it's this conspiracy theory fiction book about TWA Flight 800 from the 90s. And there's a lot of stuff mixed in there with terrorism. And that's one of my favorite ones. And finally, I read The Long Tale by Chris Anderson, which was mentioned on a, an episode of Econ Talk with Russ Roberts this week, who we, we mentioned last week as well. The book's probably not worth reading because it was actually written in 2005, and so much of it is, is just out of date at this point. They talk about like Rhapsody as the biggest music service, which I don't even think exists anymore. And it's pre-iPhone. Pre- but a lot of the stuff he predicted actually came true in terms of what technology was going to do. But the idea behind it is really interesting, and it's worth probably finding the old Econ Talk with Russ Roberts and Chris Anderson to just listen to that instead of read the book. But the, the idea behind it was, was pretty amazing. So that's all I got. All right. Kara Swisher interviewed Elon Musk 
which was excellent. At one point, she said, Elon, you're not even high and you're laughing at yourself. <laughs> I thought it, I liked it. I, en- I enjoyed I thought both of his podcasts he's been on this year have been enjoyable, whether you love or hate Tesla. Yeah, no, I thought he sounded totally reasonable. Like it was did not match up with the person that you see on Twitter. That's what I what I why I think social media probably brings out the worst in a lot of people because you read some of the stuff he writes and you think this person is an unhinged lunatic and then you listen to him speak and he I mean maybe he's just trying harder but I think it's it's easy for social media to open up those those doors of just saying stuff that just off the cuff that you probably would never say to a person's face. Scott Galloway who hosts a podcast with Kara Swisher called Pivot wrote something about social media just how it is so bad for teenagers and I can't imagine what it's like being 15 with Instagram and Facebook. He wrote, it's one thing to hear about a party you weren't invited to and another to see it unfold real time on your Instagram feed alone in your room. I really hope this stuff is gone by the time our kids are that age, don't you? (laughs) Something else replaces it. It's scary. Okay, so I actually went on sort of like a book hiatus. I haven't been reading much lately, which feels kind of nice. But I did read this week a book called Everybody Lies. Actually, I have about 50 pages left by Seth Stephen Davidowitz. And this book is our spirit animal. <laughs> okay. So he, he did talks about... Did you do that on about, purpose, by the way, since the podcast is called Animal Spirits? I did do that on purpose. He talks about how Google is digital truth serum and how one of the reasons why surveys are so flawed is because people either don't tell the truth, they lie to themselves, they don't know the truth. And there's so many amazing studies and data points in here. It would be too many to list them all, but I just want to read one part in terms of like why surveys are bunk. He wrote, the power of Google searches is not that they can tell us that God is popular down south, the Knicks are popular in New York City, or that I'm not popular anywhere. Any survey can tell you that. The power in Google data is that people tell you the giant search engine things that they might not tell anyone else. Take, for example, sex, a subject I will investigate in much greater detail later in this book. Surveys cannot be trusted to tell us the truth about our sex lives. I analyzed data from the General Social Survey, which is considered one of the most influential and authoritative sources for information on Americans' behaviors. According to that survey, when it comes to heterosexual sex, women say they have sex on average 55 times per year using a condom 16% of the time. This adds up to about 1.1 billion condoms per year. But heterosexual men say that they use 1.6 billion condoms every year. Those numbers by (laughs) definition... Wait, it's not even the punchline yet. Those numbers by definition would have to be the same. So who is telling the truth, men or women? Neither, it turns out. According to Nielsen, the global information and measurement company that tracks consumer behavior, fewer than 600 million condoms are sold every year. So everyone is lying. The only difference is by how much. See, I would have just assumed men would be the bigger liars there, but that's pretty good. So this is inject this confirmation bias of surveys into my veins because he's just totally proving us right, is he not? He is. and For being an anti-survey podcast. So... The, the, the title is Everybody Lies, Big Data, New Data, and What the Internet Can Tell Us About Who We Really Are. And there are some freaking awesome anecdotes in here. So I highly, highly recommend this book. Okay. Oh, and then lastly, I do have one more thing. So I went on a date with Robin over the weekend, which is very rare, and we saw A Star is Born. What did you think? I enjoyed it very much. I think it was probably 20 minutes too long. How long was it? Two, two hours? It was, I think, two hours, 15. But I think Lady Gaga is incredible. She's amazing. She really carried the movie. He was very good, too. I definitely give it a thumbs up. I heard Bradley Cooper's hair is just magical in the movie. 
Oh, my God. I'm so jealous. Okay. All right. We'll put it on my list. Send us an email, animalspiritspod at gmail.com. Rate and review our on iTunes for us, too, if you can. And we'll talk to you next week.